So let me show you a picture from circa 1973. That is a family photo, not an awkward family photo, at least not yet. That is of the Gucci family, the Leathergood family, right? So um, I called Oprah, and all of you are getting a bag today. No, that's not true. Okay, I just broke the commandment. Sorry. Um, Some of you did check underneath your chairs, though. That was funny. Um, The Gucci's were about the business of leather goods since like the 16th century. Yeah, unreal. They didn't incorporate into a business until around 1921, and you would think it would persist since it started that long ago. In fact, it didn't. In the 80s, they sold it to a Middle Eastern outfit, who in turn sold it to a French outfit. So you thought your Gucci bag was from Italy. It's actually under French management right now. For it to do what it did is still a remarkable thing. There are all sorts of family businesses out there. Oracle, in and out Here's a shocker. Walmart, right? Family businesses through and through. And some of those businesses can even reach back into like the early 19th century for their origin, which, as I said, is a remarkable achievement because, statistically speaking, if you're in a family business, only one-third of the family businesses stay in the family under the second generation. Um, 10% make it into the third generation, and barely 3% make it into the fourth generation. Now, you would think... A business model, like a family business model, would be perfect for it to be sustainable. Because look, we're family. We do everything together. We play, we eat, we vacation, we do all of that. Surely we could keep it in the family. No, no. The stories of family businesses are full of sordid tales of turmoil and fighting and feuding and posturing and all that. And they just don't last. And in time, it's either a family without a business or a business without a family. It's the way it works. Now, why am I sharing you all of these interesting facts that make you more equipped for a game of trivial pursuit. For you, if you've just been with us the first time, we are in a series on some of Jesus's most hotly contested and beautiful words in Matthew 5 through 7. It's known as the Sermon on the Mount. And that sermon, it's been argued, outlines for all of humanity what is the highest good. What is that way that if we are to follow, it will be better than some other alternative? It will be preferable to some other form of wisdom. And yet it is more than a set of ethics, more than a set of things you sort of check off on your ethical um, inventory. This outlines for us a way of being that allows us to flourish. And as we've said over the last several weeks, the sermon begins with these really curious, pithy statements that we know as the Beatitudes. They're blessings, they're promises, but what they really are is demonstrate a profile of someone who has been awakened to the goodness of Jesus. And what this is unique about this beatitude that we're going to look at this morning is that it speaks to how we, if we are to follow him, we become part of a new community. We become part of a new family. The people in the new members class right now in second hour are talking about what does it mean to be a family member of this family. If you are following him, you follow him as a family member of him. And the beatitude that we're going to look at today, you might say, is an explanation of the family business. What is that business? And what motivates us to it? And what is essential for that business to flourish? Those are some of the things that we're going to be thinking about today. 
But in just one verse, we're going to ask three questions. What is that family business? Why is it a family business? And how does one become groomed for that family business if it is, in fact, a family business? So if you're able to stand, we're going to read one verse, Matthew 5, chapter 10. I have a dynamic duo here to read it for us from memory. So get ready. Matthew 5.10 Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. (laughs) This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. You can sit, sorry. (laughs) Lovely ladies, nailed it, thank you. What is the family business? Like I said in the introduction, this beatitude is unique in that it it is harping on uh, one fact of what, what we're called to is a function of or derives from the sense that we belong to God and that we belong to a new community. And if we're to understand what this new community entails, we have to listen very carefully to what he's talking about. And, and therefore, to be a member of this family is to be engaged in a particular kind of business. And that family business is to make peace. Gucci made bags or makes bags. Um, In-N-Out makes burgers. Uh, Walmart makes everything for around 17 cents. But if you were to follow him and to become part of his family then you have been invited into a family business, and that business is that of making peace. Now, as soon as we say that, we have to define our terms. Because as soon as I say peacemaking, everybody has different associations for what that means, and it can easily get distorted. So what do we mean, first of all, by peace? Peace, at a minimum, is the end of hostility. It is turning away from antagonism between two Parties, factions, people at odds. And yet here, though, when Jesus talks about peacemaking, it is deeper than that. It is more than just the absence of hostility. It is about the renewal of fellowship. It is about restoring what has been lost so that we're playing again together. It is refusing, not just refusing to fight. It is, it is a determined pursuit to engage to, to be fruitful. If, if you're a kid and you're playing softball on the lot and the pitcher beans the guy in the back of the head and that guy rushes the mound and they almost go to blows and everybody's, oh, whoa, 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 stop, 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 stop. And they eventually go to their benches and they stop. That's good. But until we're playing again, until we're shaking hands at the end of the game, we aren't renewed yet. We haven't made peace yet. So peacemaking is more than just a refusal to fight. It is a desire to engage and to commune. It is to find fellowship again. The Old Testament word you know for this word, shalom, you've heard that before. The Greek word that corresponds to shalom, it's the Greek word erene. And it means a fruitful participation in one another's life. It is a restoration of fellowship, of community. And therefore, peacemaking has to be distinguished from a few other versions of it that are not really at the center of what peacemaking is in Jesus' mind. Peacemaking is, first of all, not merely peacekeeping. Um, 
I read this morning, there are over 40 violent wars going on in the world right now. People are dying today in armed conflict in 40 different hotspots throughout the world. And wherever that hotspot is big enough that it matters to enough people, who shows up? The UN peacekeepers, right? And what are they to do? What is their job? It is only to stop the fighting. It is not to be diplomatic. It is not about, about, you know, how can we, you know, make baskets together again? It is simply about put your guns down. It will be better this way. That's peacekeeping. And that's part of peacemaking, but it's not the wholeness of it. It's not just about stopping the fight, putting down the guns. Peacemaking is not peacekeeping. Peacemaking is also not simply peace loving. In that we, we champion the wonders of peace and we... You know, we write songs to it and we hold vigils for it and we post endlessly on Facebook about articles that speak to our love of peace. Peace loving is essentially in that sense kind of a passive thing. You don't really do anything about it except just show everybody that you love it. That's not the same thing as peacemaking. It's not peacekeeping. It's not peace loving. And peacemaking is also not, uh, to kind of take a certain version of this phrase, it's not pacifism. Pacifism, yeah, and that's sort of a, you know, a geopolitical term, but, but pacifism in this sense is not the idea. <clears throat> pacifism believes there ought to be no conflict, no confrontation, don't raise your voice, don't get sideways, just, you know, let's peace, shh, enough, just drop it, right? Peace for the sake of peace. Jesus has said in this beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers, but he says a little later in Matthew 10, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Put that on your next Christmas card. So how do you square those two worlds? Jesus, blessed are the peacemakers, but you came to bring a sword? What? It's not peace for peace's sake that he's authorizing or calling us to peacemaking. It's something else. And we'll just leave it there for a moment about what Jesus means. But peacemaking needs to be distinguished from those other versions of it that aren't really at the center of what peacemaking is. So if we're going to define it, if we're going to put it in simplest terms, it is a determined interest and effort to bring about true reconciliation. Whether it's between you and somebody else or between uh, two parties in which you have some sort of influence between them, that's peacemaking. Taking steps to bring about not just an arbitration where you go to your separate corners and you're fine with the result, but that you're trying to forge a new kind of reconciliation between parties. Paul makes it clear in Romans 12, let us pursue, how does he put it? Let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. In other words, the conditions in which a given church or a given organization or a given family might build each other up requires that we seek to make peace. Because why? That's the family business. It's what we do if we're part of that family. Okay, if that's, peacemaking and we're to make peace wherever we can then what what makes for peacemaking what what is required of that none of this will be rocket science it will just be sort of the simple way of thinking about what do you what is the prerequisites for peacemaking the first one should be obvious two warring factions ought to want peace at even at some level if they both don't want peace it's harder for one body to aim for peace if the other one was pretty much giving them the stiff arm you may know the 
hallowed moment back in World War I in Christmas Eve of 1914. Um, you know, the story is probably being embellished in a hundred ways since that happened, but if you know that story at all, you know that on Christmas Eve, 1914, um, a regiment of uh, German soldiers and British soldiers or Scottish soldiers and French soldiers are all have been fighting in the same place for weeks, killing each other, bleeding, dying, hurling insults, hating one another. But on Christmas Eve, something happened. They stopped fighting. And for hours, they stepped out of their trenches. You know what they did? They played football with one another. People that were killing one another the day before came out of their trenches and for that day exercised peace. And so there's a a famous line in a book that documents that moment. That's a, a scene from the day in which the German and the other allied soldiers were well. And they were not fighting with one another. My German is not so good. So here is the translation of that rather phrase there. It says, there has never been a good war and never a bad peace. Now, Germany might differ with that after World War I. And yet there is a point at which those men at that moment realized this war was pointless and worthless. And we would rather have peace than that. What did it take? Something had to click. And in the film that came out several years ago called Joyu Noel, it documents that moment, that night. And here is a clip from that film in which these armies lay down their arms. What did it take? What made for peace was for two factions, two parties at odds to, if you will, put something above them to demonstrate their commonality to speak to something grander than what is between them and to risk the possibility of not just rejection, but something worse. What makes for peace is for two parties at odds to even for a slight moment consider the fact that maybe there is something more above us than what is between us. That's what makes for peace. What else makes for peace in the midst of a conflagration of whatever sort is a reevaluation, a reconsideration of what is between us. And, and whenever it comes to discord or, or fights or whatever it might be, there's always two narratives. There's always two storylines or at least multiple storylines. And, and those times they don't line up and, and there's discord and there's distance until we just drift off and we don't care. And sometimes that, that discord or that absence of peace is just a function of a misunderstanding. Uh, things were said, uh, misunderstood, uh, misinterpreted, and the misinterpretation led to more estrangement. And then again, the discord just sort of, you know, we drift away and it, like, it's okay. Sometimes it's just through a misunderstanding. And if we can get in the same room and talk about what was misunderstood and iron that out, then boom, that makes for peace. But sometimes it's not just misunderstanding. Sometimes it's harm. Sometimes it comes with pain. Sometimes it requires something more than just ironing out of a misunderstood word. I'm reading a book this week that just got released by a guy named Jamar Tisby. He's a, he's a historian, and he's written a book called The Color of Compromise. And he's telling from historical data and some of his own perceptions that the American church has been complicit in racism in more ways than we might ever like to admit. And I know in our day, there's those that think there's racism under every rock, and then there are those who think racism is just sort of a thing of the past. And He's there to make an argument just from historical detail. And yet the, 
the real, I think the real thesis of his book is, is to argue that there is something foundational, regardless of what issue you're talking about in terms of peacemaking. And he says this, history and experience teaches us that there can be no reconciliation without repentance. And there can be no repentance without confession. And there can be no confession without truth. Those are some essential ingredients for peace to be made. And when you hear something like that and you consider all that's required to make peace, you can understand why, we, why the, the idea of a family business really makes sense. Because any of you that run a business, you know there's no such thing as running a business on autopilot. You can't phone it in. If you phone it in, the business goes into the ditch. So does the business of peacemaking. There's no such thing as it a formula. You can't wave a magic wand and it will just sort of naturally materialize and peace will surface. What's natural is us to drift, not reconcile. And therefore, if that's true, if the family business is, in fact, a challenge, then you know what? Peacemaking is not only hard to preserve, it's even harder to restore. Uh, John Calvin said of this verse, and when it comes to peacemaking, that, you know, that work is, that work is laborious and irksome. Why? Because you get two people in the room that are, that are warring, but at least worthy of potentially thinking that there might be peace again. You've got to listen to all sorts of narratives and different emotions, and, and you've got to sift through all of that, and you've got to help them see to eye to eye, and you've got to help them make concessions, and that's painful work. Some of you have been in the midst of peacemaking work, and that's tough. And you don't want to get into it. And it's even worse when you're a party to the dispute. Because you know what you're inclined to do in the midst of a place in need of peace. You begin to see the other that you're at a war with. You reduce them just to the argument that they represent. You forget to see them in their fullness. Gosh, in a marriage, you know, you get sideways with your spouse. You know what you do? You, you put this imaginary hat on them, on each other. And that hat says, I have no idea what I'm talking about. You think that's them. And you think that about each other. Because there's pain involved in peacemaking. There always will be. It's not a formula. You can't guarantee it. Reconciliation is a blessing. It's a gift. It's a miracle sometimes. Because peacemaking is a matter of the heart. And sometimes with peacemaking... Again, to underscore what I said earlier about pacifism, sometimes to go for peace, you've got to go to war. You've got to fight, but to fight for peace, because it won't naturally surface. So when Jesus says, back in Matthew 10, 34, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword, he's talking about rearranging and reorienting the very human heart such that it has a new set of allegiances. And that doesn't happen by simply way of a sermon. And when Paul says, our primary battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers of evil and spiritual forces, he's saying that our heart is influenced by things within it and beyond it that compete for our allegiance in more ways than we can count. And that's why peacemaking is hard. And that's why that family business is something that some of us don't really gravitate toward you know, with Jamar Tisby's book in my head, I did a little research this week, and I found a couple articles of lynchings that happened in Asheville back in the 1880s and 1890s. One in the New York Times, one in the Asheville Daily Register. You can read it yourself. Not state-sanctioned executions, 
people that got sideways and decided to take justice into their own hands. 30 years after the proclamation, the Emancipation Proclamation, 40 years after Reconstruction, and they're still doing lynching without, with impunity. And how does the nation respond? In the 1950s, we do Brown versus Board of Education, and we make things separate but equal. Why? To forge a kind of peace, but it's not a true peace. And what has to happen in the wake of that is people confronting the issue, confronting hearts and minds, so that a true peace can be forged out of a false one. And I'm just using that as an example to show us that while as when we're talking about peacemaking, you and I tend to think of it in terms of like, how do I get along with my spouse? Or how do I get along with my kids? Or how do I get along with my boss? This peacemaking has application in systems, in structures, in cultures, in neighborhoods, in institutions. We hear all that. We think about what this family business is, and we think, you know what? How about no? <laughs> um, How about somebody else take the business? I'm not interested. This makes me want to gag. But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't let us off the hook. Um, You may not like the idea of peacemaking. You may think the idea of peacemaking is reserved only for the professionals. But Jesus is here to remind us that this business is a family-wide business. Why is it a family business? We've talked about what it is as a family business, but why is it a family business? Well, um... You just got to read the end of the paragraph or end of the the beatitude. Blessed are those, blessed are the peacemakers. Why? For they shall be called sons of God. The phrase goes, the apple does not fall far from the tree. Jesus is about the work of peacemaking on the earth. Guess what? If you're part of his family, you're part of his business. That's his business. But before Jesus ever walked the earth, we were aware of this family family business being in place from the beginning. How about like Eden beginning? God makes Adam and Eve and then says to them, you go do your thing and I'll go do mine. No. He made them for communion. He made them for stewardship. He made them for peace with him. And then when Adam and Eve say to God, you know what? We think we've got this covered. We don't need you. The snake sounds like he's got a pretty good deal. We'll go with him. Peace is ruptured. And what does God do immediately? He begins an effort, a program of restoring what has been lost between them. Such that 15 chapters later, he makes this covenant with Abraham to build a new people. Why? That he might become a blessing unto all nations, to forge a peace with all nations. That's his plan. In family businesses in this world, it is hard for the original vision of the patriarch or the matriarch for that vision to persist. God's original vision for peacemaking already persists. It's built into the system. It's built into the plan. And the ironic, tragic thing about God's intentions for his own people to be about the work of peacemaking through their existence is that that very people get sideways with each other. David becomes king. Solomon follows David. Solomon pretty much misses an opportunity to speak of it in one way. And the nation of Israel divides into two, a northern and a southern kingdom. And they're at war for centuries under the leadership of inauspicious kings. Such that the prophet Zechariah, much later, after those centuries of estrangement have existed between Israel and Judah, says this, Zechariah, he's in the clean part of your Bible. He says this, 
I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Who's the he? How curious. Whoever this he is, he'll do two things. He will speak peace to all nations, but he will also work a peace between whom? Ephraim and Jerusalem, which just are stand-ins for the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. He, whoever he is, is going to do both. Bring peace between a warring divided nation and speak peace to all nations. Who's the he? Back up one verse in Zechariah 9, and this is what he says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a a donkey. Ring any bells? What is the text that at least a couple of the gospel writers quote when Jesus enters into Jerusalem on the week he would be killed? Zechariah 9.9. This one who comes in on the foal of a donkey who's being shouted at as if he's the new king over all things, which got him in a lot of trouble from those looking on. He's the son of his father. He's the one that comes with the same business model as his father because he and his father are in fact one. And yet he's distinct persons. That is his work. Not just a son, not just a king, but the son, the king. And therefore, if we belong to him, then we are part of his family and therefore part of his family business. Blessed are the peacemakers, this king, this son, this heir speaks. Which again, sounds remarkable, but if all I say to you is go make peace, if we are honest with ourselves, we will not. My first instinct, if someone wrongs me, is to say, fine, move along, don't let the door hit you, and I'll brood on that until I forget about it. Or if I'm the one who's been, if I'm the one who's, who has wronged, or if I just don't like conflict, I'll be too afraid to enter into it too afraid to humble myself before them, and I'll just let it go and hope it just goes away even though it doesn't go away. And if that's your story, because that's my story, the reason that is anybody's story is because it's so much of me in it. The more that is of me in it, the, the less likely that peace will ever prevail. And it is because I am interested mostly in asserting my position, defending myself, preserving my reputation, and doing anything to mitigate whatever pain I might feel. How then in the world would Jesus groom us for this family business? He will groom us in three ways, all of which come down to feasting on something. Not just hearing it, not just thinking about it, not just taking notes about it, not just filing away in a folder, but feasting on it. For us to go there, we have to almost step out of ourselves and see something grander than it. And therefore, I refer you back to that scene in 1914. What are they doing? 
They're appealing to a common story. A common story that holds them both together. A story that in that one brief shining moment they clung to that allowed them to let go of their guns. They grabbed that and therefore was able to release that which was between them, even for one brief shining moment. The Lord Jesus is here to give us a story. And that story is something we're out to feast upon, and we're out to feast upon it in three ways. We have to feast, first of all, on the lengths to which he went to make peace for us. We have to feast on the lengths he went to make peace for us. He leaves everything that was true and beautiful and glorious unto him. He sets aside everything he had a right and claim and title to. He enters into squalor. He enters into misery. He enters into danger. He enters into threats and hatred and even into death. That's the length to which he goes to make peace for us. And when we feast on that, not just hear it, but to sit on that and feast on that, you know what that does? It reminds us that this act of peacemaking was for him not just a side business. He wasn't moonlighting in the work of peace. And therefore, if it was a priority for him, it's a priority for everybody that's in his family. It's not something he leaves to the quote-unquote professionals. It's everybody's gig. And when we feast on the lengths to which he went, we are groomed for that business. But we also have to feast on the depths to which that peace was directed. If Jesus is your Lord, then that is meant to give you a peace that passes understanding within. And those who have that peace that passes understanding within act differently in a world where they are met with hostility. When they were met with slights, they respond differently. They act with an instinct toward peacemaking rather than fighting fire with fire, rather than um, retribution or recrimination or whatever it is. But that peace that exists within and manifests without derives from something deep. And that is the peace that we have with God through the blood of Jesus. A peace that is lasting, a peace that is true, a peace that is irrevocable. That is the gospel. And the more we feast on that, the more we are groomed for that business. And do you know why it has that effect? Because there's one or two reasons why you won't want to make peace. One is because that you're so full of pride that you think it's, it's beneath you. But when you and I believe that there has been a peace made between us and God that was greater than any estrangement that we could have ever known, then that will allow your pride to crack a little under the weight of what he did. Such that you will stop seeing the one that you're an adversary with as just the argument that they represent. Or if you are fearful of entering into the conflict with somebody, not just to stir it up, but to seek peace, if you believe that there has been a greater peace made between you and the Lord, then maybe whatever pain you feel, and there will be pain, there's no magic wand, there's no guarantee that any of it will bear fruit. Whatever pain you might feel, it will have to be seen in a new perspective when you feast on the depths to which his peace has been wrought for us. You feast on the lengths to which you went, you feast on the depths to which this peace went, but you also have to feast on the breadth to which this role applies. 
Like every one of these Beatitudes, Jesus is really not very specific. He just says, blessed are the peacemakers. So does that mean in my marriage, um, in my friendships, um, at my school, at my workplace, in my neighborhood, um, between the aisles of Congress? Uh, does it apply any there? And Jesus would say, those are fine. There's no specificity. There's no limitation upon where this work applies. And when we feast on that, we see that it's everybody's business and it goes into far-reaching corners and crevices of your life that you never dreamt. This is our work. This is our business. And it all comes down to what he has done on our behalf. Because only that is strong enough to propel us to make a risk at the search for making peace. And that's why Paul will say, also at the end of the book of Romans, if possible, insofar as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I'll close with this. About eight years ago, I had the chance to go to Dublin. And there's a cathedral in Dublin that's now a museum piece, if you will. And in there, there's a an ancient, ancient door, probably five or six hundred years old, good, hardy wood. They don't make them like they used to. And that door has this curious hole in it. And if you read the story behind it, there was at a time two clans, two families at odds, kind of the Irish virgin of the Hatfield and McCoys. And one of the members of the family had done something treacherous against another, and he ran into this cathedral and locked himself in this door with some of his clan members. And those who were at odds with him, they had come to seek peace, to figure out what had happened, and somehow not to let this escalate into something greater. And that hole is in the door, and the one who's on the outside, they're beating on the door, open up, let us speak. And they wouldn't speak. They were fearful for their lives. And so the member of the clan on the outside of the door, you know what he does? He thrusts his arm through the door. It's where we get the phrase, hazard an arm. He risks his arm. I mean, they could have had broadswords and cut it off right there because they thought he might be coming after them. But he hazards his arm through the door as if to say, let's just talk. He had been captured by another story and he risked his arm in the door. He hazarded it to see if a peace might be sought and made. Friends, the, I think the the message of this story is to remember the peace that passes all understanding that he's wrought unto you through his son. And then where it might apply, hazard your arm. And where you try, and even if it fails, would you tell me the story? Because we need to hear stories. Remember his peace. Hazard your arm. Tell me your story. That's our family business. Let's pray. Father, even as I say those words, I know how simple it sounds to speak them and how immeasurably more difficult to put them into practice, to have either the courage or the humility to do so. And therefore, I would ask that you would search my heart, 
to know where I might find this applicable in my life. And I would ask that you would do the same for them. Not that we would be saved by our peacemaking. We cannot save ourselves. But that we, like our bodies, who do such an unimaginable job of rushing to the wound where there is a rupture, would you help us, insofar as it depends on us, to live peaceably with all? Oh, where does it work? Where does it apply? How must you humble us or strengthen us in our timidity to seek for that which is your work? May it be unto us as you have said, sir. In Jesus' name, amen.